Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Radio. And this is our uh, last um, live show. And Jacob's here in the studio. Sorry. Yep. Uh, yeah, I forgot to say good morning. Good morning, <laughs> listeners. And yeah, Lali is right. It's going to be our last regular program for the season before we go on holidays. So. Yes, but that doesn't mean that we won't be around. Um, we have got uh, a lot of programs that we'll be loading up for people to listen to. Um, we're trying to do a theme of Latin America and especially focus on uh, Cuba uh, and Fidel Castro and the history and the victories they've had and the, and the challenges they've, they've faced. So keep listening, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy the programs we, we're going to put, put to air over the summer break. Now, the other thing we sometimes, uh, well, often forget to mention is this show is available on podcast, and uh, we are streaming live on the web um, and, of course, in your radios and so on in your cars. Um, if you are listening, just remember we are um, still waiting for our fund drive to be completed. <laughs> We're doing different things, fundraisers and so on. Um, but we'll be grateful if uh, people can uh, regularly donate to 3CR to keep it alive and running. As we know, it's the only strong alternative radio that goes to air in Melbourne. Okay, today we have got a packed program. Um, it, the last issue of Green Left Weekly, we'll be covering a few articles. And we also have um, a couple of interviews that we, strangely enough, we are always live to air. But today we've got two pre-records. <laughs> one is um, with uh, one of the leaders of the left in Malaysia, Siva Armogam, who's the secretary of the Socialist Party in Malaysia called PSM. And Brother Ali, who is... Um, yeah, I can tell you a bit about Brother Ali. Um, Brother Ali is basically, he's a, uh, a rapper in the United States. Um, he's sort of situated within the sort of alternative hip-hop scene. Um, so if you've heard you. of yeah. artists like Talib, Quili and Immortal Technique, he's affiliated with those kind of artists. So. He's very good, isn't he? He's sort of middle-aged, but he's so good at it. But okay, let's um, perhaps start with um, Sivas' interview so that uh, people can have a little bit of a roundup of what's happening in Malaysia. So here we go. This is an interview with uh, Sivarajan Aramuham, who is the Secretary of the Party Socialist Malaysia. He will be talking to us about the Brise uh, rallies that were held around the nation and around the world, actually, in, in response to the corruption that's happening in Malaysia. And he will be also talking about the latest uh, battle by the uh, Aboriginal people of uh, Malaysia Peninsula against the activities, the logging activities of companies supported by the government. Good morning, Siva, and uh, thank you for talking to us uh, at the Green Left Weekly Radio. 
Yeah, hi, good morning, Lali. Thank you for inviting me to this program. Okay. Now, a lot of things have been happening in Malaysia since the MDB um, tumultuous period. I guess uh, there's a lot of developments with Mahathir and so on. So let's move mm -hmm. on to the Bursay protests. And I believe Arul was arrested and later released. And Maria Chin, is she released or what's happening there? Uh, Maria is uh, released. Um, but what has happened is that now they are beginning to quest, uh, call in the activists and the political party reps to, for questioning. So all those people who spoke at the rally, all those spoke at the other rallies in, in the mobilizing, the pre se mobilizing rallies, they have been called in for questioning now. Uh, on the background, what we can say is that what the government is trying to do is that it's, it's trying to implicate that this whole Berse rally and the uh, and the events that they had were sponsored by foreign funding, mm. and thus and thus it has got that ill motive to overthrow the government uh, from for foreign. Uh, it's a, basically a foreign agenda. It's, a, it's all this activity was done with uh, funds linked with uh, Soros fund and so on. So this is the the picture they're trying to paint, and they're trying very hard to get statements from all of these leaders and activists, so that they could charge them. If, uh, they could charge them. Mm. Uh, that's that's what we're seeing is happening. Even yesterday, uh, a couple of the lawyers and even some of the Bursay activists were called again for questioning. Even these people were detained just before Bursay, a day before Bursay, like Arul. And but now again, even those statements were already taken. Now after Bursay, they have been called again because I think the police are trying very hard to get some kind of evidence to sort of implicate and to to prosecute them. So that is what they are, they are trying to do now. Mm, okay. So what is Brussels' plan, the leadership mm. of Brussels? What are they planning? Um... Uh, well, of course, the, the rally itself uh, was a success. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, after fighting all the intimidation and everything. Uh, so, but at the moment now, because I think some of the, uh, the activities, uh, they have been a bit distracted because of now they have to fight a new battle like I said uh, earlier, mm. uh, they've been questioned by the police and there's a lot of uh, uh, things happening where, in fact, the police also yesterday, they have identified several prominent human rights um, NGOs like Swara Arm and uh, Empower, which is a women NGO. So they have targeted key NGOs where they, they're going to, in a way, bring them in for questioning. So all of this thing which is happening now, I think it is a bit distracting uh, versus work like, where they have to put for people to defend them and so on and also we're not too sure about the status of what will happen with uh, Maria even though she's released now but yet again she can be called in uh, for further questioning and so on so some of these things are a bit uh, distracting birthday work mm. <clears throat> but at the moment as far as I know um, uh, they have not sort of announced any uh, plans next plans they have not really announced yet um, the other things which are happening on the sideline is, of course, where they have been fighting the uh, the, the the electoral boundary delineation process, mm. uh, which the election commission has done uh, a couple of months ago, and which is obviously a gerrymandering process to ensure the win the win for the ruling government. Mm. So they have filed a court action, and uh, so that will be something for us to see what is going to happen whether we can stop the delineation process happen uh, to happen before the general elections. So these are things which are happening, but I have not uh, heard of any grand new plan after the rally, mm. uh, which they have announced so far. Mm. Yeah. 
But it's one of the, the campaigns that's uh, very well widely known around the world, in fact, isn't it? So it has a lot of clout, and maybe that's mm, why yes. they are saying, oh, yeah, foreigners are helping you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and any excuse to, to intimidate activists is the, seems to be the strategy at the moment. Yes, right. Okay, the um, other issue I wanted to talk to you about is Guamusang, um, mm -hmm. up near the Cameron Highlands, and... Um, you know, where logging is taking place, mind you, logging is taking place in, in Sarawasabai area as well. So I just wondered if you want to update us on what's happening there. I believe there was some, you know, uh, arrests or so on near Guamusang lately. Yes. Um, the, the people, as you know, these logging activities have been going on for a very long time, for 15 over years. And the Orangasli uh, community, which mm. is near the Guamusang uh, district, now, this Guamusang district, interestingly, it is under the Kelantan state. And as we know, Kelantan state is being ruled by the Islamic party. Yes. Oh, and uh, these things have been happening for 15 over years, which has always been under the rule of the Islamic party. But it has been uh, getting very bad uh, recently, whereby there's complete, complete disrespect for their native uh, customary land rights. And the encroachment has been happening even up to their doorsteps. So even though the Orang Asli community have been trying in various ways all these years, they've been having meetings, they've submitted memorandums, they've sub submitted letters, uh, approaching the uh, members of parliament, state assemblymen, but up to date, the state has turned a deaf ear on their appeals. And um, they have also met with the, uh, the previous chief minister, which was the, the late um, Nick Aziz, eh? mm. uh, who was actually was held in a very high... Uh, position within the Islamic party because he was one of the uh, prominent spiritual leaders for the Islamic party themselves mm. and um, most most the Malay Muslim community in Malaysia will sort of look up to him as a spiritual leader so even they have met him also and sort of uh, uh, told about their problems but there was no solutions up to date now we can see why the Islamic party uh, rule government has not acted on this obviously because they know that if they do grant uh, land titles or they do recognize the native customary land rights to the Orang Asal people, then it sort of, they will not be able to give any concessions to the, the loggers. Yes, of course. So, it's, it's, so the interest is in complete contradiction. So yeah, I think it was very obvious now. So what the state has done is that it has continuously given uh, logging concessions to the, the, to the loggers association and they have sort of uh, devastated the whole area. And that was the cause of the big floods that we had in the state in the year and the end of 2014. Mm. But um, they don't seem to have uh, learned from that, that experience. And, uh, and now the situation has got so worse is that it has, up, it has reached up to the doorsteps of the villages, whereby the, uh, the rivers are polluted, the Orang Asal are unable to carry on with their own livelihood. They are unable to roam around the forest to get the, uh, the products of the forest. The water supply is contaminated and it's a very bad situation now. So thus is why that um, the Orang, Orang, uh, Orang Asli set up the blockades uh, last month and it was a quite successful blockade where they got a lot of support from the Orang Asli community. And obviously the first stage was that the loggers, they came in with the police and all that. They broke down the blockade and... Um, there was an attack by not only by the logger associations, but also they have used the the forestry department. They have used the police 
department they even use uh, what you call it is a special force a special police force to attack orang asli so we have seen a lot of arrest a total of uh, 47 people were arrested uh, in the first round and the, the following that uh, they were remanded for two days under police lockup and following that another seven people were arrested and so successfully they have broken the blockade uh, after the arrest and uh, now what is what is happening now is that uh, we we feel that the the logging activities will resume whereby the loggers will be uh, able to log their products and they will be able to take it out uh, from the forest but anyway from yesterday's meeting uh, we had with the orang asli uh, they were here in KL for to file another report and we understand that they are they are very motivated and they are very uh, they are very uh, committed to continue the struggle so they will be putting up more blockades so that was an interesting thing that we could uh, learn from them and we are planning some activities to support their their struggle mm. Some say that they are they geared up to fight this all the way. The other question I, was, I want to ask is, um, the the Orang Asli of Malaysia, <coughs> excuse me, um, this campaigns yes. they're conducting, um, are they doing that in conjunction yes. with the uh, Sarawak Sabah people as well, or, or is it a separate campaign they're doing? Um, this is of course um, in Semenanjung Malaysia we call them Orang Asli. Yeah. Uh, of course, they are the indigenous people, yeah. and uh, and in sabah sarawak they are known as orang asal uh, it's just basically you... both indigenous people but <laughs> yes. mostly uh, they, they they come from different tribes actually yeah asli and so asal sabah sarawak we As... have different tribes yeah they do yeah in sabah sarawak it is uh, a combination of different tribes and in semenanjung is a combination of different tribes but their issues are quite similar yeah uh and uh, but here in, in the current issues which is happening in the state of Guam Musang in Kelantan uh basically they are campaigning among their coalition they call it the jaringan orang asli in uh, semenanjung malaysia and also in the state of kelantan hmm. so most of the support has come from within the state okay um and it has been quite quite, quite good because usually because of their location which is situated far into the rural areas into the jungles uh previously their struggles would not be very prominent mm. and they can be easily uh, intimidated but i think this time it was quite significant whereby the issues really was really blown out and a lot of civil society groups taken it up and a lot of people came in to support with food supply ice when they did their blockades so i think it was a good thing that uh, now that particular state government has been put in a position where they have to really answer to this uh, uh this accusations on why they never really recognize their customary rights and um the other question uh, that we have to look at also because their rights as indigenous people it is enshrined in the federal constitution mm. and um but what has happened is that uh, the laws which come after the federal constitution like the forest forestry act law and even the land code laws have sort of intimidated and sort of uh, taken away their rights which is enshrined in the federal constitution so this is something that we have to look look at legally whereby uh, why the other laws they can sort of overpower the federal constitution itself mm. and uh, and they had, and this thing has been going on for a very long time no one really sort of taken it up in in this angle so i think um, this fight will sort of open the doors into exploring how we can fight this matter and to bring back Uh, their rights which is uh, in the federal constitution itself
sounds like a good battle to fight, especially if you've got legal grounds to fight it on. So that's a winnable one if uh, they don't manipulate the law as well. They, well, they can't manipulate the Constitution, can they? It's, it's enshrined. So they'll have mm. difficulty fighting that one, don't you think? Yes, of course. But let's say uh, this is how things happen in uh, in Malaysia, even though with um, other the in terms of uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, <laughs> all of things, things are uh, long in the federal constitution. Yep. But we know how the police have used all of uh, the, the assembly uh, regulation, the police act against us for such a long time. And mm. it was a long struggle for civil society groups and even for us until when we saw that uh, the police could not really use the police act and they themselves have to uh, bring about a new act which was the peaceful assembly act mm. uh, which was in line with the federal constitution mm. so so that, that that that's what happens lah <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's that's yeah. well in every country they they do bend the rules so to speak don't they anyway yeah, yeah. thanks um siva that was a, a wonderful interview and, and very informative all right good thanks good. bye okay. And that was Sivaramugam from the Party Socialist Militia um, who gave us that interview. And there's a fuller version of it, which we will hear over the summer break. So there, there are a lot of things happening there. And the Party Socialists had a uh, militia also had a, a conference recently. And uh, they are planning lots of activities in resisting the corruption and, and the attack of the ruling class in Malaysia on working people. And this is what they had. They had it over the break, uh, 25th to 27th of November. And this was in, in, in particular to, to celebrate as well the release of Maria Chin, who was arrested with uh, our children, who are both um, members of uh, Party Socialist Malaysia. And this was, this happened during the Brisee demonstration, Brisee 5 demonstrations, of course. They, uh, they were held in solitary confinement under the Anti-Democratic Security Operations Special Measures Act. Um, so a special candlelight vigil was held before the Solidarity Night, which opened the conference, and Chin was released on the 28th after 10 days in detention. So Bursa is the movement um, against corruption. Bursa means clean in Malay. Um, for They're calling for clean elections, of course, and this is a catch cry from the time they were initially formed. So as we know, there are three races in Malaysia, and you know this battle continues. It's it's divide and conquer. The British um, strategy that the Malays of the Malaysian government is um, emulating, uh, and the Barisan National, which has been in power, it's the main party um, in power since independence in 1957, uh, is fighting for its life. I guess, and hopefully, more progressive forces will get into the. Um, government to give people a, a fairer um, go and many international guests at this conference. Jacob has a few more um, articles to read. Alright, so um, the first article I have to share, um, which I won't kind of read out word for word because a lot of parts are kind of like out of date since this article is dated on Monday and it's in relation to um, listeners probably heard from last week we were talking about the Teachers for Refugees action, um, which took place this Monday. Um, basically, this week, brave teachers from across um, the country, um, basically in Australia, you know, were wearing T-shirts to support Teachers for Refugees. Um, it was an action organised by a group called Teachers for Refugees, and in response, there was a kind of like, you know, extreme sort of government backlash. 
um, you know, with a conservative kind of shock from the Herald Sun, you know, who were condemning these teachers for doing something as terrible as standing up for human rights. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, what, one of the, um, in, um, as Teachers for Refugees says, in the classroom, in the staff room and on the streets, teachers can play a powerful role in the campaign for justice for asylum seekers and refugees, and wearing T-shirts is just one part of this. Um, you know, yeah, uh, Mark Goldcamp, who was one of the um, founders of Teachers Refugees and an activist in the Sydney Refugee Action Coalition, told Green Left Weekly that he was prepared for some backlash, um, but not to the extent. He said, you know, we've had the forces of reaction lined up against us, the shock docs, uh, the Murdoch press, and the trio of federal bullies on the form of Malcolm Turnbull, Simon Bring Birmingham and Peter Dunton. They have, in turn, have leaned on the state education ministers who have leaned on our principals to heavy us. However, the rights reaction, he stated, seems to have had the opposite effect. Lots more teachers have gotten involved and orders for t-shirts have gone through the roof. Um, we won't be intimidated, he said. The level of community support has been overwhelming. And, you know, he makes us all this comparison, just like the health professionals at Lady Clientel Hospital, who refused to let several children be taken away by border force authorities earlier this year. Teachers on Nauru and Manus have spoken out against incarceration of their charges. Um, and, you know, on in response to this, you know, the Herald Sun has been, and the Murdoch Press has been making these claims that, you know, it's inappropriate for teachers, you know, to speak out against abuse. Um, you know, they, they should be just educating their children. You know, this is, this is the reason This is why. education. Yeah. Uh, well, here's, it is, as he says, you know, it is highly appropriate for teachers and educators to speak out against systematic child abuse and denial of adequate education for kids and their parents in Nauru and the single men on Manus. And, you know, he makes this because, you know, by law, you know, teachers within their unions have a right to campaign on issues. For example, teachers can distribute campaign material outside the gates for greater public school funding or against that plan. And, you know, so too we should stand up to, say, close the camps and bring the refugees here to settle in the community. Um, so, yeah, what's happened um, since then is there was a very successful vigil that happened in Melbourne mm. um, on Monday night. Um, it gathered over around – I was there for a bit, um, a few minutes. I saw over at least 100 to 200 people, which I think was a very successful action. Um, you know, very inspiring to sort of see, especially since the majority of people there were all teachers from the, the community in Melbourne. Um, and, of course, if you go on the Facebook page, um, Teachers for Refugees, you'll see photos of teachers in their workplaces from Sydney all the way to Victoria. Um, and there's some around the country and in some rural areas because, um, as far as my understanding, rural Victoria um, ordered a, a, gr a good number of T-shirts. Um, and and in, the, in terms of the broader union response, um, the New South Wales of the National Territory Education Union um, uh, the Australian Education Union and the New South Wales Teachers Federation are supporting the Teachers Action. Um, the NTEU said on December the 12th that it condemned efforts to intimidate teachers from being involved in this action, adding that teachers have a right to political opinion and to state their opposition to offshore detention policies and government abuses of human rights. The proposition that a teacher is imposing opinion on a student is by wearing a t piece of clothing or that distracts from their ability to deliver lessons is ridiculous. But what amuses me is what right does the Herald Sun got to tell teachers what to do? I mean, the Herald Sun's level of um, reading is about year five. Teachers are highly educated. Um, 
and you know people can do what they see is just and um they have a right to campaign he the, the herald sun has got no right to tell people what they should and shouldn't do it, it's just just authority they seems to assume um to to dictate like the Murdoch press does you know and express opinions and make it popular or broader um and it's a consumption of these horrible articles that oh yeah teachers should be teaching why are they protesting you know is well nurses should be nursing why are they going on strike this sort of rubbish that goes on and what they refuse to acknowledge is, is a whole society these are human rights values a whole society should should be aware of and kids need to understand what human rights is and we teach kids to be good to each other and this is what we do to refugees so teachers have every right to do what they did and i think that's a great lesson in life for kids if they join the teachers good on them as far yep. as i'm concerned but anyway just my my beef for the week <laughs> so the next article um jacob oh yeah so um in listeners in wa there's a big sort of um sort of def- um camp sort of known as the blr wetlands i think it's in cool be up in wa um so basically um the blr wetlands protectors camp is um basically that it's a group of um, young pro- several protesters taking non-violent direct action against the row 8 highway project um which threat- which is basically a, a project which threatens a, a sort of precious area of um wetlands area and significant aboriginal sites um peter boyle here reports in the green left weekly people from all around the community have assembled here to stop work on the row 8 freeway which is going to through the Bilal wetlands and woodlands this is what sam wright uh, sam rangwright um socialist alliance Fremantle city councillor told green left weekly at the p- protest camp we have a state election three months away in march so between now and then we need every bit of momentum to show um that the um that the wa um that the, this government who which is currently um um run by the w Western Australia Liberal Party is prepared to waste public money on a freeway that hasn't been properly assessed, is extremely environmentally damaging and is socially destructive. We've got to put the pressure on the Labor opposition to definitely say that it will terminate contracts for constructions of this freeway, Wayne White said. All around the countries we see governments for the 1% blowing billions of public funds on destructive road and tunnel projects which serve no good purpose but are very destructive. The purpose these projects do serve is to further enrich the corporate mates of those in government at the public expense. So, yep, the camp is um, still operating right now. And if you search um, Belair Wetlands, so if my pronunciation is, doesn't come off well, um, how do you spell Belair is B-E-E-L-A-I-R. So search that up in Facebook and you'll find an yeah, action group which tough. shows all the um, the kind of current developments that are happening in um, that campaign. So okay. stay tuned. Okay, um, talking about um, teachers and their, and their activities, there's a, a historical article in um, the last paper we've uh, published. It's about 30 years anniversary of the Victorian nurses' strike in 1986. And um, Irene Bolger was um, the notorious or famous, whichever you look at it, uh, for me it's famous, um, led that uh, strike, but the key thing is the members of the nursing population in Victoria not just led, but they also um, kept kept it going for 50 days. It um, started in October and finished in December just before Christmas, and the 20th it finished. 
I was an organizer in that union at the time, and I do remember vividly many, many of the battle fronts I visited, and um, the spirit of the nurses, how we held out for 50 days. Um, and that came only after uh, a no strike clause in the award was removed three years prior, this is 1983. Now, it's, um, it's interesting to, to go back and visit and see how the trade union was attacked by the variety of press, media, and so on. And I remember distinctly when um, we were talking about the strike that the media and, and few other organizations were busy running around Victoria looking for someone to die so they can absolutely slam the nurses. And we were so highly organized because every hospital, the nurses were so angry that they got themselves organized but ensured that no one was going to be in danger. So it was, it was an amazing experience, which I wouldn't um, exchange for anything in my life. That's one of the best trade union activities by women in Australia. And yet, you'll find that in, in many um, quarters, they refuse to even mention it. And that's been one of the biggest um, disappointments for me of the labor movement. Uh, trade Solve could have organized a, a great event on that day. It didn't happen. Uh, the labor, <coughs> labor uh, collectives around have done nothing. Uh, but Social Alliance, we held a gathering earlier on this year to celebrate 30 years of um, 30th anniversary of the strike. And uh, Irene and I spoke and, and Gwyneth Evans spoke at the forum. So it was a successful forum. And this article covers a lot of the stuff in the politics, of course. That's when the accord had been introduced and the nurses were being accused of breaking the um, accord, which was signed. Well, it was it was actually crafted by Laurie Carmichael from the he was ex-communist, and um, he he and the ACTU uh, together um, uh, crafted the um, the documents. Um, just excuse me for one. Um, and sorry, the um, problem was the whole labor movement was against the strike, or the leadership of the labor movement was against the strike, which means that. None of the unions came to support the nurses when they were on strike. Of course, the only union that came anywhere near public, publicly supporting us was the BLF, the old BLF, or the uh, precursor to CFMEU. But we had a lot of individual members who came out to support us. It was um, highly supported by the public, over 80% support. And uh, Kelty, who was arrogant, just flew off to Tasmania and left the a major strike happening um, in, in Victoria. To, to a certain extent, it's a contempt for women, women who wanted to take action around their working conditions and wages and their refusal by the government to even budge was, was just simply appalling at that time. But um, the author is Nicholas James, who has um, interviewed Irene and myself to a certain extent. And I just want to read the conclusion that he draws, or Irene draws from the whole thing. Um, the accord collapsed in the John Howard years. It directly transitioned the unions into the neoliberal state of affairs. Union membership tumbled, industrial towns closed down, and manufacturing went offshore. Class and gender distinctions sharpened. And that was a key thing in, in this um, particular strike at that time, because women walked out and they made a very strong statement about what they are willing to do to fight for their rights. And Irene said this, um, female union membership is high 
in teaching, nursing in, and community services. And she said she, th- she thinks that the senior female group could be now <clears throat> sorry, uh, the new strength of the labor movement if only male leaders acknowledged that fact. And after 30 years, she says, better to just forge on, forget about the government. So trade unions and leaderships need to look at this. And it's happening now with the, with the um, fast food industry. And we can actually, I'll go to a quick break and we'll come back to the new union that has been formed. We've got an article that you covered last week. We covered that already. Yep, yep. Okay. But so people are aware there's a new union for fast food workers. So let's go to a quick break and then we'll come back to the program. Um, um, which you're listening to on 855 AM on 3CR um, for listeners who are just tuning in now. Um, I guess I've got an article here. This is, this is a, it's, it's from the Herald Sun, but it's kind of a bit relevant um, and we definitely yeah, worth discussing. Yes. Um, basically, <clears throat> um, union and party volunteers, are, apparently they could be banned from handing out how-to-vote cards at polling booths under radical reforms being considered by the Turnbull government. Um, basically, they're basically pushing for a reform that would make it so that, um, you know, how polling, you know, polling day, you have volunteers handing out how to vote cards. Hundreds of them. <laughs> um, well, basically, what um, um, the um, what several Liberal MPs are pushing for a change on is basically making it so that the polling boot, um, basically, how to vote cards are placed on a stand made by registered volunteers, which these res- registered volunteers would have no right to go and hand out how to vote. So, basically, you know, this this band is apparently aimed at combating activist groups like GetUp and public sector unions who's... In mem- particular, they are being pinpointed, if you notice. Yep. Um, you know, to amend... Uh, but, of course, one of the things with these laws is to get them passed, the government would need the support of the Greens or at least nine of 11 um, crossbench senators. Um, Greens spokesperson and good on her, um, Leary Annan, told the Herald Sun that the party had held internal discussions on the matter and was unlikely to support it. Um, the, you know, the Liberals only want this out of self-interest, not to improve democracy. I wonder why that is. And, of course... <laughs> The Herald Sun kind of reports on these sort of scandalous kind of incidents, which are kind of funny. But basically, um, uh, yeah, basically at the July election, police were apparently called um, to a handful of polling booths at marginal seats, including La Shrobe in outer eastern Melbourne, as tensions rose between unions, volunteers and candidates. <sighs> Although, interesting enough, I have a friend who was um, handing out in the outer east of Melbourne, not particularly La Shrobe, but in the outer east, and apparently, um, though most of the sort of bad behaviour actually came from liberal volunteers, for what it's worth. Um, that's an- only anecdotal, but that's just a bit of. Um, and of course, one of the things is um, the article kind of ends here. Well, is that there is apparently a similar ban already in place in Tasmania in the, in the Australian Capital Territory, but the parliamentary committee in Victoria rejected the proposal following a view of the 2014 state election. Um, um, GetUp um, have also slammed the proposal, accusing the Liberals of attempting to shut down free speech, and yet this should definitely be condemned. But my kind of analysis on this, I, don't, I think it's so ridiculously out there for the Liberals, and I don't think they have any chance of passing legislation, but if they did have a chance, it definitely should be something that should be opposed at all kind of costs. 
Yes, I agree. And I think because the liberals do that because they none of their people want to go and hand out. They have to pay volunteers to go and, and, and do this, as you pointed out earlier, Jacob. And well, they're too posh to go out and stand in the street and hand out anything. Whereas we like people, we like to get down there and talk to people. And that's the main thing they're worried about, you know. Well, the, it's sort of the difference between the Liberals and a lot of the major parties. I mean, even the ALP, um, you know, then I would argue they're not that distinguishable from the Liberal Party, but they do actually have a grassroots kind of support base that they do draw on unions and so on and networks to, you know, to always, they always have volunteers willing to hand them out on, um, on polling day, whereas Liberals, especially in marginal seats, always struggle. Um, and in fact, there yeah, there are reports that they, like on my polling booth on the federal election day, um, the Liberal volunteers left after 12 p.m. Mm. and there was none there for the rest of the day. So it was interesting. I was heading out in Faulkner for the local elections uh, not long ago, and I and I was there. Uh, it was open. The booth was open till five, and it was getting a bit cloudy and uh, was threatening to rain. It was about three thirty. Everybody disappeared from all the parties. I was the only one left standing. So it's it shows that the, you know people who are committed um, do stay on, and the ones who are paid will go to it, it's self preservation really. Okay, so one more. Um, Local news, and I, I sort of am interested in this one myself because of health implications. You didn't cover the fat tax last year or the sugar tax last week, did you? Oh, no, we covered it already. You did. Yeah, but for me, the most important thing is that, you know, the sugar tax is, is a, a stupid fix. It's not going to work. Um, and I see it at work all the time where people come in, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. It's, it's a bit like, you know, the, the smokers, I, I heard this piece of news the other day. Smokers are, are now saying that, oh, well, the harm is not as much as it's been said it is, you know. And a similar thing is going to develop because sugar is addictive, very addictive, actually. And people, and look at the shops, you know, who promotes what. And you find that in every shopping center you go to, the, the things that catch your eye most is the sugary stuff, whether it's yep. cakes you know, or drink, like even the, even the milkshakes, they have all sorts of um, um, you know sugar uh, replacements, but none of them and none of them are health wise any good for anybody. Well, there's one thing with you know just quick sort of observation is like if you go to um, like a healthy cafe. Um, you know, that serves like a nice sandwich or something. Um, the price of that is always significantly more expensive than, say, going to McDonald's. Um, you know, any sort of proposal that seeks to, you know, address um, the health of like should be actually be starting from trying to make healthy food cheaper than trying to tax the already unhealthy food, which is already so saturated in the market to begin with. Yeah, like the one dollar McDonald's cafe. Unfortunately, some of the people I know actually like the bloody thing. I hate that. I hate that coffee. Okay, uh, we can move on to some Italian, uh, Italian uh, international news. Um, the Italian referendum is an interesting one, where the uh, Renzi, the leader of the governing Democratic Party, called um, the centre left in Italy, and he's be he's a forty-one year old a prime minister who pushed the yes case as a crusade. And um, he ran a very strong campaign, being the incumbent, 
of course, there was um, a crusade by young social media savvy um, outsiders in a titanic struggle against the aged um, cast of corrupt politi- politicians and um, bureaucrats. For Renze, the, the constitutional reform in the country's once-in-a-lifetime chance to be able to run at the speed of globalization. In other words, a stronger neoliberal agenda is what we're looking at. And um, he wanted to stop being taken as a joke by the European partners, apparently. But he claimed that the constitutional package would give national government the powers to improve the lives of ordinary citizens like the earthquake survivors and so on and so on. But the no case claimed that no equally, sorry, um, no. The no case claims an equally anti-establishment banner, and not only the Metal Workers Union, the FIOM, and the extra extra parliamentary left, the self-described populist Five Star Movement, and the right-wing Northern League, but even media tycoons and former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, leader of the centre-right um, Forza Italia. Um, so it's it's. It was a mammoth battle. Now, the Renze was um, a successor uh, to an enormously, um, what you know, um, revolving door um, prime ministership in Italy, and, and I think they've had sixty-three prime ministers in sixty-four years, or something like that, roughly the figure. Now, he what Renze planned was that the Senate would become a house of review cut from 315 to 100 members, which by itself sounds like a good proposal and would have probably got up if it was just that one he had put up. But what muddied the waters was all the other things he put with it. Um, the The whole package uh, was um, to harness more power for the um, bureaucracy, so to speak, which means the people... Decisions, the decision-making power in the in the uh, ordinary lives of people would be highly bureaucratized. Uh, any specific measure is the fact that full impact of Renzi's package cannot be measured separately from Italy's highly undemocratic new electoral law. This creates a two-round system, with any party winning 40% on the first round being assigned 54% of the seats, which is totally undemocratic. And in the... Um, Chambers is 630 seats, and you you will get 340 seats automatically as soon as you get 40% of the votes, which is just unheard of in in most other so-called democratic countries. In the likely case that no party wins 40%, this bonus would go to the winner of a runoff ballot between the two lists with more first-round votes. So similar sort of proposals in that package that Renzi put forward and advocated a yes vote um, ran into trouble, and of course they lost. But what the um, general media media here doesn't cover is the fact that there were 700 different grassroots organizations that had geared up and launched a massive campaign against Renzi. And that's why Renzi lost. And, of course, he resigned. Um, so the no case won. Uh, it, it will... It, 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 it now places a big challenge for the divided Italian left as it struggles to project its agenda against that of no case other supporters, the racist wing. However, the movement that has risen 
um, to block Ranjit's plan, full of a new generation of enthusiastic activists, young people, of course, can provide an important basis for a sorely needed renewal. So it's it's an interesting development in Italy. So we'll have to watch that space, so to speak, and see how it all pans out. Now, oh, yeah. we, do you want I'm, to do the news, or shall we go to the interview, the other interview? Just play a quick announcement, and I've got I'll get this new new. new yeah, no, that's fine. Go. So, um, basically, um, this is the latest article in Green Left Weekly. Um, it's not in the print edition, but you can um, see it online. Um, but basically, it's about uh, uh, Indigenous community winning back um, ancestral land rights on Cape York, for which they were removed in the 1930s for nearly four decades. Um, that fight is, as reported in Green Left Weekly, is finally over after the title deeds to the land were handed back in a ceremony at the Lockhart River on December the 15th. Um, ownership of the entire white sand country, uh, um, 1,080 um, square kilometres in and around um, Shelburne Bay, was formally transferred to the Wandre um, people uh, as Aboriginal freehold land. About 40,000 acres, about one-third of the land, will become a national park to be jointly managed by the state and traditional owners. The Wandre hope jobs and economic benefits will flow to them through tourism and conservation management. Um, Shelburne Bay is dominated by brilliant white silica sand, um, dune fields, some up to 100 metres high that drop down to the Coral Sea. Um, Scattered through the dunes are beautiful freshwater lakes. Um, There are also 39,000 hectares of internationally recognised Ramsar wetlands, which attract massive numbers of migratory wading birds every winter. The land is um, home to more than 30 rare and threatened species, including the southern um, cassowary and the palm cockatoo. Um, For a bit of history, um, the Shelburne Bay has been the traditional homeland of the Wanhafi people for the millennia, and the white sand country has been and continues to be a central feature of Wanhafi stories and cultural identity. Um, traditional owner um, Bill Wallace said, Today is a very historical day for us. It's the start of redeveloping our country and looking after country and managing country and looking at other ventures. Because this re- country is very unsport, very untouched, there's a lot of sacred sites out there, a lot of story places the younger generation need to learn and carry on those practices, whether it's gathering food, medicine, teaching those kids about the story places and why they're important to us. Chairperson of the uh, the uh, Wandali um, um, Aboriginal Corporation, jo- Johnson Chippendale, said the circle was now fully complete after his ancestors were removed from their country four generations ago. Our people were some of the best conservationists in the world, he said. We have eight seasons in one year. Our people had the knowledge to hunt and gather from different areas and they knew exactly what time and place we should be going to collect. Um, Queensland Treasurer Curtis Pitt said a breathtaking um, landscape has been returned to its rightful owners. This is a defining moment in Queensland history, culture and conservation. There are few other places like this in Australia, he said. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say we have a proud moment with Green Left Weekly. Um, uh, the activist and filmmaker... Zabidi Parks, who, um, of course, is part of the Green Left team, has won Best Short Film Documentary. Um, Green Left TV has uh, put this on show. And you, you can find Green Left Week on the web, of course, in, at the Sydney uh, Indie Film Festival 
for his refugee documentary called My Friends in Detention. The film explores the impact of refugee activism in Australia on both refugees and activists. It draws on the true story of um, Perth-based refugee rights activist Sarah and her relationship with Kali, a Tamil refugee who was uh, jailed in Curtin Detention Centre. As well as being accepted in several festivals around the world, the film has been screened around Australia by activist groups. Also winning Best Feature Documentary at the festival held in October was Punks for West Papua, which details the campaign by Australian punk musicians in support of West Papua's struggle for freedom from Indonesian occupation. So that is a great victory for Green Left and the West Papuan community, of course. I just wanted to touch on this particular article before we go on to another break. Um, it's about Noam Chomsky. Um, I I absolutely admire Noam Chomsky and he's highly <coughs> popular. Although he just turned 88 this month, he's still active. He remains a professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And, of course, he's written many, many books, and he is popular in the YouTube um, arena. You know, there's tons and tons of material. And he's, he's, um, he originally was a linguist, and he has become a highly respected commentator on politics and social issues around the world. So he's written a book. It's called Who Rules the World? And, of course, it's no different in terms of the way he attacks the ruling class. I think what I remember most of Noam Chomsky is that he wrote the book on um, the coverage of the media of the Vietnam War mm. and how the um, coverage of Americans and the attackers, way, I mean, it, it outweighed the coverage of the actual Vietnamese victims of this war at the time. Um, was ever covered in any media. They didn't care. All they were interested in what the white people were doing, not about the, the, the yellow-skinned people, so to speak, in, at that time. But this new book um, con- is consists of 23 brief um, but meticulously, meticulously researched chapters. He lucidly, lucidly um, demonstrates that the world portrayed in the mainstream corporate media is usually the inverse of the truth. And, of course, most of us know that. <laughs> And uh, at a number of points in the book, Chomsky invokes the 18th century founder of political economy, Adam Smith, a figure often held to have laid the theoretical foundations for free market capitalism. And uh, Chomsky reminds us that for Smith, the masters of mankind were the manufacturers and the merchants of his time. Far from giving them unqualified support, Smith accused them of following the vile maxim, all for ourselves and nothing for other people and described the consequences of this rule as grievous and involving savage injustice. For Chomsky, the contemporary equivalence of Smith's masters of mind consists of multinational conglomerates protected by state power, the gargantuan and predatory um, institutions of international finance capital and the elite figures who are their political representatives. The class consciousness, the class conscious business world, which usually are very highly class conscious, and the corporate sector are the primary domestic constituency of governments. Chomsky does a great job in exposing the myths promulgated by the corporate media about the activities of the late latter day masters of mankind. So that's a book certainly worth buying. And um, I guess it's another one like Naomi Klein's this, that changes everything. But this is at the economic front. And he explains it, um, you know, 
pretty explicitly and, and meticulous research, of course, is, which is feature of his books. And it's Who Rules the World. It's an indispensable reading for anyone seeking to understand the events as they unfold in the new world of Brexit and Trump. And that give us, gives us a um, explicit view. Now, before we go on to another, the next interview, I just wanted to read one more thing, which is actually quite important and gets forgotten very often. This is from Sri Lanka, the Tamil community. Um, for the first time um, on the 27th of November, the Tamil Ilam Heroes Day, which is a day where they commemorate all those people who fought and died in that war against the repressions of the singular government or, or genocidal government, to be precise. And they were able to light candles and um, and and remember those people who suffered uh, torture and all sorts of atrocities perpetrated on them by the Sri Lankan government, Sinhalese government. So they held a commemoration, uh, taking the police by surprise apparently, and students lit candles and put up posters commemorating fallen heroes. Some Sinhala and Muslim students joined Tamil students in the commemoration. This is significant given the long history of, uh, of government-sponsored ethnic divisions in Sri Lanka and that divi uh, divide-and-rule strategy that's very popular. It was made popular by the British at the um, turn of the century. Oh, no, it was the 17th century or 16th, actually, when the colonization process began. Okay, the commemorations were also held across the world and um, many people attended, and I know 2,000 people attended in Sri Lanka. But that's the news, and let's go to the next break. And we got actors calendar before I interview. And the interview, yeah, yeah. okay. We updated that announcement, it's $10 for six issues because the price has gone up. But anyway, now we move on to the activist calendar. All right. So um, since it's getting right into the holidays, um, there isn't much happening on the activist scene, but there is actually a number of events um, happening today, actually. Um, from 4 p.m., um, many listeners probably know about the CUB 55 win. Um, there'll be a victory party at 4 p.m., um, at the Shrades Hall, so um, say, um, if you want to go celebrate with the workers about their ritual, then you can come along to that. Um, also happening on at 7.30pm, there will be a tribute to Fidel Castro. Um, with, there'll be different speakers, music, food, I think there are all sorts of should different things. Should be good. <laughs> so yeah, it should be good. Um, good um, um, final um, tribute to Fidel Castro. And also... Hang on, that's at the corner of Ligon Street and Carlton South. Yep. Uh, I just presume everyone who listens to Freestyle knows where, where Shrades Hall is. There'll be new listeners. We need to let them know. <laughs> yep. Um, now, the next, um, this Saturday, um, there'll, there'll be an end-of-year party for Friends of Public Housing who do a lot of great work. Um, that will be happening um, will be happening from 2 to 7 p.m. Um, at uh, the African-Australian, Astra not African-Asian, African-Australian <laughs> Community Centre, um, which is at 30A Pickett Street in Footscray. Um, that's happening this Saturday from 2 to 7 p.m. And yeah, everyone is welcome and, um, yeah, hopefully. Okay, I've got a couple more, but this is more in January for those who are planning ahead. Just three events. The two events on the same day, actually. On the 26th of January, Share the Spirit Indigenous Music Festival, 1 to 6 p.m. at Treasury Gardens. And the same day, there's a Belgrade Survival Day, 12 p.m., at Borthwick Park. I'm sure you can uh, Google that. 
And the 29th of January, there's a Pride March. So get ready for another wonderful march. It's at 2 p.m., corner of Lakeside Drive in Fitzroy Street in St. Kilda. So there are the announcements for today. We shall move on oh, to the next one, interview. Oh, one more. One more. Sorry, there's a few sorry, more. Jacob. Yeah. Um, basically, FreeCR will be organising... Um, uh, there's going to be a free CR fundraiser yep. um, at the, I think it's next week on the 23rd of December from 6.30 um, at the Backlot um, Studios. It's basically a fundraiser for for, um, for the free CR Music Matters, Burning Vinyl and Let Your Freak Flag Fly, um, which they're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Mark Butcher's um, film Sticky Carpet, which is featuring interviews and scorching live performances by the Dirty Free, the Stabs, the Board, I Spit on Your Gravy, The Sailors, Love of Diane Moore, and the film documents the raw and vital Melbourne music scene in 2006, and it also features FreeCR's own Mark Gleeson and Michael Smith. Um, so, yeah, it will be tickets to the door will be at $5, and doors and pay bar open from 6.30 with the screening starting at 7.30. So can you just restate the venue? Yeah, it's clear. the Backlot Studios. I don't know the exact address. Uh, I presume it's in Fitzroy, but if yeah. you put search that in Google Maps... We'll I'm get sure back to them it. with the details. Okay, move on to the next interview. Yep. Okay, so this, you want to introduce Brother Ali? Uh, um, the interview, he's introduced in the interview itself. So okay, yeah, fine. just play the recording. Right, here we go. All right, so in the studio today, um, we have um, Brother Ali, um, who is a highly respected um, hip-hop artist, um, speaker and activist from um, Mississippi Monroe. His um, decade-long resume includes six critically acclaimed albums, mentorships with iconic hip-hop legends Chuck D and Rackham, and performances on late-night um, shows with Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fun. Um, Brother Ali, from my understanding, is going to be touring Australia soon, um, and so we have, um, have him in the studio to talk about his latest tour. So, Brother Ali, can you start by talking about your latest, um, latest tour coming soon? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a part of a hip hop, underground hip hop independent label called Rhyme Players Entertainment. And we started 20 years ago um, making music in Minneapolis, which is really far from any major city. Um, we're a collective of artists that decided that instead of each one of us trying to create and, and promote our own music and careers, that if we did it together, uh, then we could create a movement and a scene and a context that we could exist in. Uh, and so we did that. We built a uh, studio and a fan base and um, ended up traveling around the country, first in the, in the Midwest region in, in the U.S., and then all around the U.S., and then started going to Canada and started going to Europe and started going to Asia. And now we've come to Australia and New Zealand, probably somewhere around 10 to 12 times. And so um, we're very, very grateful because of the fact that we are independent. So the people that listen to our music, they had to search to find it. Um, every now and then, like you mentioned, we get to be on television or, you know, Triple J has been supportive when we put music out. And I've made a song with the Hilltop Hoods that was helpful um, in your neck of the woods. But for the most part, for people to hear our music, they have to look for it. And it spreads by word of mouth. And it spreads from friend to friend and from heart to heart. And people sharing it online with each other. And, and so this is what gives our music a lot of meaning, both for us and the people that listen to it. So to be me and Atmosphere, we're the two, I uh, would say, main, uh, main stable artists from this collective called Rhyme Fairs. Um, and so we'll be traveling together. 
uh, and we'll be performing at the same shows. I'll perform a set, and then Atmosphere will also perform a set. Then we have DJs that will be there, um, you know, spinning live. And it's a it's a very kind of party vibe, and it's a very intimate kind of vibe because of the fact that we write these songs from such a personal place. And like I said, people discover them by being shown our music by their friends and things like that. So it, it tends to be like a really good connection that we have with the audience. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've listened to some of your music before, and um, what has always um, struck me about it is, um, and especially on this program that you're going to be, um, that we're interviewing you for, because um, we are a political activist program, uh, I want to ask you about, you know, what is the politics that kind of expires um, your music and your lyrics? Um, well, my music has always been, and, and hip-hop as a genre has always been the voice and the media for people who didn't have a voice or didn't have a media. Um, so particularly it was created by uh, black and brown people in New York uh, who lived in the worst parts, live in one of the richest countries on earth, but are given the worst of everything. And most of all are not listened to or you know, very little attention is paid to them until are uh, in their humanity to make a mistake and succumb to, to the environment. And then if somebody does something, commits a crime or something like that, then suddenly all the spotlight is on them. But the entire time that they were growing up in poverty with bad health care, bad education, uh, the criminal justice system targeting them, no attention was paid to them during that part. And so, you know, the music that's always come out of America, all of it, without any exception, was created by that community, that community of enslaved Africans uh, and their children and their descendants. Uh, and then also other people, other poor, especially poor and working people in America interact with them, and it's given uh, people really around the world a lens and a context to, by which to express their humanity. And so, um, you know, just hip-hop as a genre and as a cultural expression really embodies that. I personally was raised by that community and was raised in that uh, environment. Um, I also have a genetic condition. I'm an albino, albino. And so I look very different, and it was a struggle for me to figure out how to have enough pride in myself and how to carry myself with dignity and how to determine for myself what it means to be a human being and to be somebody of value and to not let the society or the people around me dictate that. And hip-hop gave me a way to do that, as it does for, for disenfranchised people all over the world. So those are the politics that are in my music. A lot of it is, is very... Um, that when, I, when I do talk about politics, it's because a lot of the people that listen to our music um, are poor and they're white, which means that they're oppressed economically, but they're relatively privileged racially. Hmm. And a key function of privilege is that it makes it so that you don't have to ever really acknowledge or see even, or even really become aware of the difficulties that other people have. And so a lot of the, the politics that, that have been in my music has been uh, sharing with the poor white people that listen to my music that race and economics work together, that part of why you're economically oppressed 
is because of racism and that those two things work together. And actually, you're being used by the people who are in power to do their dirty work. Hmm. And so uh, you're given a certain degree of privilege based on that. It doesn't mean that you've had an easy life. It doesn't mean that you've had a silver spoon. And it doesn't mean that you chose that. So you're not guilty by having that experience. But that experience is what's blinding uh, especially poor white people uh, to the, the, the players that are really acting out their oppression and really maintaining that hierarchy that keeps them always fighting for scraps. And so a lot of the politics is based on that, based on the fact that I have an experience by being raised in the black community that I don't know that they have. Hmm. And so trying to share what I know with somebody that, that may benefit from it. Yeah, taking um taking that sort of um line of thinking to a more, something more specific. What do you think about um you know the connection between politics and activism, and you know how does yeah I mean not politics and activism, music and activism, and how your music can you know support activist movements and struggles? Well, I've done you know some very specific things uh, like in the in the Twin Cities where I live. Uh, there was a, a movement called Occupy Homes that was a, um, a branch of the Occupy movement that basically said, you know, there were young white students who had come to the, uh, the realization that the game is rigged and that it's not fair and that they, in fact, aren't free. And so they were out protesting with their voices and their bodies, and they were very passionate. And so some folks had the idea to have them go to uh, the places where people are you know, specifically losing their home in the black community and, um, and offer and, you know, lend their support to that. And so I was able to become part of that movement. It really spoke to me on, on a lot of different levels. And so I, uh, you know, gave or, or helped lend a voice to that. And both by throwing concerts in the houses, so I would have like a free show where somebody might come to a, a club and pay $30 to see me. And, you know, in in my state, a 1,000 people will show up, 1,500 people will show up for that. But if we do, if we put on a free concert in one of these houses, not everybody wants to come to something like that, but maybe 500 show up, whereas if it's just a, a regular political rally, uh, you get the same 100 people at every rally. So this time we got 500 people, and we can do that regularly. And then when they're there, they can see the faces of the people that are being impacted and the people that are, that are volunteering and that are protesting and organizing and mobilizing. So they, it, it really invited a, a group of people into that space that may not have started out without the music. Um, also, music is, is, speaks to the hearts of people. And that's something that's becoming more and more rare in this age of propaganda and corporate media um, and, you know, corporate, um, corporate everything. So the ability to speak to people's hearts is one that's, that's really, really meaningful. And that I feel like no matter what, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, the, the, I'm not Jay-Z, um, but we all can do something for the, whatever size of people, whatever group of people we impact. Yep. Whosever ears we have, we're able to offer something, and you just offer what you have. So, like I, I didn't have a million dollars to donate. Um, I couldn't get Rolling Stone to come to one of these houses, but I can get the local press to come, 
and I can get some people on my Twitter timeline to come. Um, so that's what I offered. Some people, uh, they have two friends that listen to them. And, you know, so the question is, what are we willing to uh, give? And what are we willing to uh, sacrifice for the purpose of uh, living in a more fair, free, just world? Yeah, that is. Um, oh, yeah, that's really great to hear. Yeah, I think I'm. Re- it's really fascinating to hear um, those kind of experiences that you've had. Um, since we're running low on time right now, I guess um, the kind of last thing I'll ask is, what is the date of um, for listeners? Um, what is the date of your next show um, and tour in Australia? Like, what are the p- specific dates and um, um, cities? Mm, this is very unprofessional of me, but I don't have it in front of me. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be in Australia and New Zealand in February. Yep. Um, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, well, uh, all we need to know is that it's in February, and I'm sure Green Left um, Weekly Radio will um, have the dates um, there in our activist calendar that we do on 8am on our show every every Friday morning. Um, but yeah, uh, it was very great um, having you on the um, in the studio, um, Brother Ali, and very thanks for your um, fantastic interview and being on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you. All right. 3CR, celebrating 40 years of radical radio. Gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying, Happy Birthday 3CR! Australian Arab women come from 22 different countries. We felt women supported by welfare services, but we felt the gap to empower women and help them to develop independency and leadership really does provide a voice to the voiceless and accessing the, that, that breadth of community. 3CR, celebrating 40 years of radical radio. Welcome back to Green Left Radio, 855 on your AM dial. 
Um, and this is a Green Left Weekly Radio. And Jacob, you've got something to Okay, say. so I have a sort of big, this is a sort of announcement for a big panel that is going to be organised by the Socialist Alliance um, in Geelong um, about building a militant union movement today. Um, it's going to be happening next month on Friday the 20th of January um, from 6 to 6 p.m. at the Geelong Trades Hall. And it's actually going to be very big kind of panel like you know we have a much big almost bigger than Ben Hur in terms of the speakers <laughs> um, so the speakers were featuring we have Troy it has Troy Gray um, who is the Victorian State Secretary of the Elect- Electrical Trades Union um, we have Mike Shreen who's the National Director of the Unite Union um, and to tell you to give you a bit of background for the Unite Union the Unite Union is playing a similar role to the new well it's it's basically a union in New Zealand that is organising casualised labour, for example, fast food workers. Mm. Um, so the whole idea of the Unite Union is trying to bring together those um, those kind of all these sort of ca- organising the disorganised, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's And so he's, he'll obviously be talking about the work that they're doing there in its relation to the question of how you build a militant trade union. So it'll be very interesting to hear from him. Mm. Um, if you search Mike Shreen, he has a lot of articles on exploitation of migrant labour mm. um, in Links, which is um, a journal um, sort of oh, inspiration with Green Left Weekly. Mm. Um, now going on from there, Siobhan Kelly, who's the pro- president of the new Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, will be speaking. Um, Siobhan Kelly has sort of expertise on being a lawyer um, who's basically played a lot of um, a very, um, very great role in sort of defending sort of fast food workers against unfair wage um and the conditions. And conditions. So that's going to be a good And then we have Andrew Hewitt, um, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. Um, that's a particularly interesting union that is very sort of very developed and really come a long way. It's one of the more democratic, um, one of the more, more militant unions in and Australia highly today. Organized. And yeah, very highly organised. And they've had, and we've actually covered a lot of their recent victories and wins on Green Left Radio. And then we have um, Social Alliance member Tim Gooden. Um, who's the former Secretary of Geelong Trades Hall Council and a member of the CFMEU. Yep, so that's good. And Jackie? Um, Jackie won't be, is just going to be an MC. Okay, she's uh, the current president of uh, Geelong Trades Hall. Yep. Well, there, there'll be two MCs. There'll be Jackie Critz, um, who's the president of the Geelong Trades Hall, and Colin Vernon, who's the current secretary of the Geelong Trades Hall. So, yeah, it's good. Sounds like a powerful panel. Yeah, so it should be an expiring night, especially for all um, trade unionists out there. Um, highly encourage you to attend if you can. Mm. Um, I just thought that, you know, since we are coming to the end of the program. I just wanted to reflect a little bit on, on Fidel Castro, who, of course, passed away recently at the age of 90. What an amazing contributor to class struggle he has been and uh, such a, a fierce anti-capitalist uh, warrior. So he says, Fidel, uh, in this article, um, Marseille Cameron writes, Fidel is daring to dream of a, a revolutionary transformation of our own society. The working and working patiently towards it in ways that are meaningful to each of us, respecting each other's contributions and seeking the pathway of principled unity. Fidel is contributing to our little grain of sand to the revolutionary hourglass, recalling that he began his struggle with a handful of idealistic youth with hardly a cent among them. So this is the spirit of Fidel. And it's interesting, he, he, you know, people don't often relate um, Fidel Castro to the environment, but 
he had said a few things before the 1992 Rio summit, and I, 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 you know, I would like to indulge a little bit on that. So he warned that um, capitalism was a threatening was threatening to destroy human civilization through ecology destruction with the poor of the global south its first victims. The Cuban Revolution was itself provided has itself provided an example with a large scale shift to sustainable agriculture in the aftermath of dire economic crisis caused by the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. In 2006, Cuba was listed by the World World sorry, World Wildlife Fund as the only country to achieve sustainable development. So that is the um, achievement of Fidel Castro's and the, the Cuban people's dreams of establishing a sustainable um, economy and development, even if it's at, at um, not first-class standards, as the U.S. would put it, which I still question if it's first class when you've got fast food um, outlets all over town and all over the world. Um, this is quite a different approach to sustainability in, in Cuba. At the summit, then Cuban President um, Fidel Castro gave a speech. And um, this is what he said. An important biological species, humankind, is at risk of disappearing due to the rapid and progressive elimination of its natural habitat. We are becoming aware of this problem when it's almost too late to prevent. It must be said that the consumer societies are chiefly responsible for this appalling environmental destruction. They are offsprings of imperial policies, which in turn brought forth the backwardness and poverty that are the scrounge, scourge of the great majority of humankind. With only 20% of the world's population, they consume two-thirds of all metal and three-fourths of energy produced worldwide. They have poisoned the seas and rivers. They have polluted the air. They have saturated the atmosphere with gases, altering climate conditions with the ca catastrophic effects we are already s starting to suffer. It's still current. All those views are current. Isn't that amazing? The forests are disappearing. The deserts are expanding. Billions of tons of fertile soil are washed every year into the sea. Many species are becoming extinct. Population pressures and poverty lead to desperate efforts to survive, even at the expense of nature. The, world, the third world country, so to speak, um, yesterday's colonies and today's nations exploited and plundered by an unjust international economic order cannot be blamed for all this. The solution cannot be to prevent the development of those who need it most because today everything that contributes to underdevelopment and poverty is a flagrant rape of the environment. As a result, tens of millions of men, women and children die every year in the third world, more than, a, more than in each of the two world wars. Unequal trade, protectionism and the foreign debt assault the ecological balance and promote environmental destruction. If we want to save humanity from the self-destruction, wealth and available technologies must be distributed better throughout the planet. Less luxury, less waste in a few countries would mean less poverty and hunger in most. Stop transferring to the third world lifestyles and consumer habits that ruin the environment. Make human life more rational. Adopt a just international economic order. Use science to achieve sustainable development without pollution, pay the ecological debt, eradicate hunger, 
not humanity. Now that the supposed threat of communism had disappeared, there is no pretext to continue the arms race and military spending. That is preventing what is preventing these resources from promoting third world development and fighting ecological destruction. Enough of selfishness, enough of schemes, enough uh, sorry, enough of schemes of domination, enough of insensitivity, irresponsibility and deceit. Tomorrow will be too late to do what we should have done long ago. And that is Fidel Castro, which is amazing. He he was always a man of vision who could see things. But um, we have come to the end of the show. Um, I just want to just read Fidel Castro's words because it's so relevant, especially for the young people of today. Yep. And maybe I'll just make um, the announcement again that there is going to be a tribute to, to Fidel Castro happening tonight yes. from 7.30pm at the... Victoria Melbourne Trades Hall, which is the corner of Ligon and Victoria Parade. <laughs> uh, the corner of Ligon and Victoria Parade. So yeah, yeah. So that'll be actually good fun um, to to attend. So let's say goodbye to our listeners for now. But we'll be back for the summer program. Um, I'll leave you with um, a bit of music after the outro. <laughs> 